Father, thank you for your word, for the word of God, which is true. And we desperately long to hear from you. And so we pray that you would speak to us now as it is read and as it is preached. Encourage us, strengthen us. For those in the room who don't know you, we pray that your spirit would work in a mighty way, even saving some today. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 3, starting at verse 22. This is what it says. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to, John, they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, wit bear me witness that I have said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes... From above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. All are going to him. Remember where we are in the order of events? Jesus has come into the world. He's begun his public ministry. And to this point, the true light was in the world, but the darkness did not recognize him. His public ministry, the ministry of Jesus, began with a confrontation at the temple. And then a miracle at a wedding. And then a teaching about being born again to an influential Pharisee. And now we see that Jesus is baptizing people. To this point, John the baptizer was the only one who was baptizing people. But now while Jesus is beginning his public ministry, we see that Jesus too is baptizing people and John continues to baptize people. John had gained quite a following. A lot of people are coming to him and becoming his disciples, being baptized by him, listening to his teaching and following him from place to place. Now remember, his baptism was a baptism of, of repentance. It was a baptism that showed a sense of contrition by a person and a desire to be in a right relationship with God. And so as a sign of repentance, they would be baptized. So much so that one of the Jews 
comes to follow John, and they get into a discussion about purification. And this particular Jew asks a question, and he gives an observation. The question is something about purification, and we don't know the details because the text doesn't tell us. Most likely, it's related to the Jewish idea of purification from the law and how that is the same or different than what is happening here in baptism. But then he makes an observation, and this observation provides for John tension and temptation. The observation goes something like this. Hey, John, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but all those bunches of people that used to be following you, now they're all going over there and they're following him. All have gone to him. What do you think about that? And you can imagine all the possibilities that that type of question might imply. Maybe it's really a question of his efficacy. John, doesn't your baptism work? Is that why people have to go over there and be baptized by Jesus? Or maybe it's a question of the nature of the teaching. John, who's right and who's wrong here? You or Jesus? Or maybe it's just a question about more personal emotion of jealousy or pride. Hey, John, you've been at this for a few years and you have done really well. How do you feel about being replaced by the newer model? The public ministry of God is happening, and as this public ministry is expanding, it is transitioning from the baptizer to the Messiah, and the tension is found in how is the baptizer going to feel about the short-lived nature of his ministry and the short-lived nature of his notoriety. He's on the spot, and his reply is absolutely brilliant. It can be summarized by the statement at the end of verse 30, which very simply says, He, being Jesus, must increase, and I must decrease. But in the middle of this explanation, there are a couple of things that are worth meditating on further. Look at verse 27. Immediately following the questioning of this Jewish man and the observation, John says to him that, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Hey, John, how do you feel about all of the people going to him? Well, a person can't be given one thing. Not a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. And whenever a principle is stated so clearly in the scriptures, we sit up and listen. <laughs> what does he mean by that, and does that actually apply to us today? Well, yes, it does apply to us today, but how so? Often some people will apply this verse as it talks, to, as it addresses material possessions. As if to say, you have some things and somebody else has other things and, and you can have nothing unless it's given to you from heaven. And in a general sense, I suppose this is true. I mean, we recognize that God is the giver of all things. He created all things. He provides for his people. He's actively involved in the world. But I don't think... A strictly material interpretation is what John is really getting at here. Because after all, 
John didn't have many material possessions, and nor did his following give him many material possessions. So what does he mean? I think more precisely what John is saying is that regardless of the circumstances or the claims or the ventures that people have in life, God's sovereignty stands behind them all. That God is at work in the world so much so that the rising and falling, the successes and the failures, the ebbs and the flows are all under the watch care and even the action of this sovereign hand of the God of the universe. And no amount of jealousy or doubt or insecurity or pride are going to change the plans of God. There's an application here for us, I think. We can state it pretty simply, but it's not simply employed. (laughs) The application is, if God's sovereign hand is behind all things, then trust in the sovereign purposes of God through all the circumstances of your life. Trust in the sovereign purposes of God throughout all the circumstances of your life. And that The Bible gives us all kinds of explanation of what some of those sovereign purposes are. The largest of all of God's sovereign purposes are to bring glory to the Son, Jesus, by saving men and women and boys and girls and transferring people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son and transforming them into the likeness of His Son. That's the language of the book of Colossians that we can see if God is doing anything in the world, he's doing that. He's transferring people from darkness to light and he's transforming them into the likeness of Jesus. And all of the circumstances and actions of your life somehow fit into those sovereign purposes of God. Your job, your marriage, your family, your relationships, the society, the government, even your neighborhoods, all of them. And so our lives then In our lives, we look for opportunity to fulfill God's purposes. We look for them by doing the next right thing that's in front of us and looking for opportunities to speak a gospel truth and to encourage people and to help people move toward transferring or transforming. Because you have nothing unless it comes from God himself. And so in this sense, all Christians who seek to minister function as the best man at a wedding. (laughs) They function as the one who rejoices in the groom. Or they function as the maid of honor at a wedding. One who rejoices in the bride. And you don't go to a wedding that's a well done or successful wedding and have the best man steal the show. I mean, periodically you'll see in the, in the news media a, a bridesmaid or a maid of honor that shows up the bride by the sheer nature of her beauty or the flow of her dress or something like that. But that's not a successful wedding. <laughs> a, sex, a successful wedding is one in which the bride and the groom and their union together are what is magnified the most. And everybody around rejoices at that very thing that happens. And so John calls himself the the best man. And Jesus is the bridegroom. And he concludes this statement with resolve. My joy at seeing what is happening with the bridegroom is complete. He must increase. And I must decrease. 
And the words there are so important. His joy. <laughs> Inner personal satisfaction and delight. Resting in the plan of God. Even if it means his own diminishing. His life is not about himself. It's not about his emotions. It's not about how he feels. It's not about his fame. He lives for the fame of another. And so it is with every person who would call themselves a Christian. And this verse, he must increase and I must decrease. This verse has been a descriptive verse repeatedly throughout history to describe Christian piety. A holy and humble attitude before God. And rightfully so. Because every single one of us is confronted with the question, whose glory are we after? I wonder when you look at your life, the thoughts of your life, the actions of your life, how you would truly evaluate that question. Whose glory are you after? I want to say be careful here, friends. Be careful. We live in the age of self-glorification. More than any time in recent history anyway, an age where pride and self-centeredness have become excusable and commonplace. An age where we are obsessed with portraying the very best of ourselves on Instagram or giving our opinions as if they are the last and final word on Twitter or seeking constant and regular affirmation on Facebook. And if you are not careful, without even knowing it, you will find the habits and patterns and interactions of your life being to feed the monster of self-glory. That you would increase and he would decrease. Follow the example of John. Do your tasks well, but seek the glory of another. Seek the glory of the one who truly is the most glorious. Seek the glory of Jesus. And as you do, you experience, like John experiences, a great and tremendous joy at the plan of God being enacted in your very midst. He must increase. (laughs) Because that's the plan of God. So why? Why must he increase? More specifically, beyond the fact that it's simply the plan of God, which it is, Well, here in the second half of this passage in verses 31 through 36, John gives four reasons why he must increase, why Jesus must increase. And we can summarize those four reasons in this one phrase. The one who comes from heaven gives us the benefits of heaven. That's why Jesus must increase, because he comes from heaven, he gives us the benefits of heaven. But more specifically, the four reasons that lead us to that are found In verses 31 to 35, the first one in verse 31, that he comes from above and is above all. The positional 
origin of Jesus is the reason why he should be elevated into higher standing than any other human voice. And to say it another way, we could say it like this. He's already of higher standing than the rest of us by his nature. And so we might as well just recognize that standing. And he gives a contrast to help us understand. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. There's one from heaven, there's one from earth. The one from heaven is greater than the one who comes from the earth. From the earth. This word earth here is a little bit different than the word that we've been seeing throughout the Gospel of John. The word for world. The idea of the world in the Gospel of John is the realm of darkness where wicked deeds take place, where light is penetrating darkness, but darkness isn't seeing it properly. Here, there's a little bit more general nuance to the idea of being from the world. But nevertheless, we see that the one from the earth is the one who is finite and therefore has all kinds of limitations. 1 Corinthians 15 points us to this. Paul contrasts Adam and Jesus, and he says this. He says, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are all of those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are all of those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So there are two categories of people, Adam and Jesus. And the promise for those who believe in Jesus are that even though they are born like Adam and act like Adam and looked like Adam and talk like Adam and have the same priorities as sinful Adam, they will be transformed to look like the man of heaven, Jesus. So right now we speak and see and experience what we know and all of that is incredibly limited in nature. And following a man or a woman will lead you only to further limitation. But not just a limitation. Following a man or a woman will lead you all the way to the gates of hell itself. Because we can't help but lead anywhere else. But Jesus, he is from above. He's completely unique. He is entirely different than us. He is from heaven and is able to lead us to heaven. And so he should be elevated. The one who comes from heaven gives us the benefits of heaven. Esquire magazine recently gave a scathing critique of the unchecked power and influence of the big four tech companies. Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple. In describing the supremacy of Google specifically, the author writes, as more and more people become alienated from traditional religion, we look to Google as our immediate, all-knowing oracle of answers from trivial to profound. Google is our modern-day 
God. Think back on every fear, every hope, every desire that you've confessed to Google in that search box. And then ask yourself, is there any entity you've trusted more with your secrets? Does anybody know you better than Google? A parody of these beliefs gives nine evidences that Google could actually be seen as a deity in this way. And it's not as far-fetched as you might think. Google is the closest thing to an omniscient entity. It knows everything. Just type it in the little box. Google is omnipresent. You can access it anywhere. Google answers your queries, requests, or even prayers. Do a search for all of your questions and all of your problems, and an answer will be given. Google is potentially immortal. Doubtful. Google is infinite. Google remembers all. Google can do no evil. And according to Google Trends, the term Google is searched for more than the terms God, Jesus, Allah, Buddha, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and Judaism combined. (laughs) But friends, we know, even though we might not act like it with how we engage that impressive tool, we know and we feel and we've experienced the shortcomings of such a reliance. Because as magnificent as it can be, it doesn't get all the way into our souls and give us what we truly long for and truly need. But the one from heaven does. The one who comes from heaven gives us the benefits of heaven. The second reason that Jesus should be elevated is found in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Now that's worth thinking about for a minute. What has he seen? And what has he heard? And how does that inform his message? Not only was Jesus from God the Father, but he was with God the Father in eternity past. He was with him in the place that we all find so intriguing and mysterious. And so he was with him in heaven. And this is why every single time another book comes out, that claims that somebody died and went to heaven for five minutes or ten minutes or twenty minutes or two hours, we all, not we all, but many hundreds of thousands of people scoop them up to buy it because we all want to see what he's seen. We all want to know what he knows. And, and even though we have this hunch that those types of books are, are far-fetched or fake, curiosity gets the best. Because of the nature of mystery and the glimmer of hope that we could possibly comprehend what is happening in the heavenly realms. What has he seen, (laughs) this Jesus? What has he heard? I think of the famous passage from Job 38 and 39. You know the story of Job, the story of a man who 
undergoes a tremendous amount of suffering at the hand of Satan. And his friends all tell him to renounce God. He does not renounce God, but he does ask some God. He asks God some questions along the way. And in, verse, in chapters 38 and 39, God responds to Job in such a way that he gives them just a string of brilliant rhetorical questions to highlight the fact specifically, you, Job, are finite and don't know hardly anything, and I am God and I know everything. And so as... We think about how this applies to his son Jesus. It only brings him glory all the more. Listen to the words of God to Job and then apply them to Jesus. God says in Job 38, 4, Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Not Job, not you, but Jesus was there. God continues to Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know all this. Where is the way to dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? Can you send forth lightning that it may come back to you and say, here we are. Jesus can. Or who can tilt the water skins of heaven? When the dust runs into a mass and clods stick fast together, who provides for the raven its prey? When its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food, do you know when the mountain goat gives birth or do you observe the calving of does or do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with mane? No, you don't. <laughs> But Jesus does. Jesus saw Satan and the angels rebel against God the Father and be banished from heaven. He was there. He saw the fear of Abraham as he went from place to place wandering and offered his wife Sarah to the rulers. Jesus saw the burning wrath of God the Father against Pharaoh for his idolatry and his arrogance. He heard the complaints and the cries of the Israelites in the wilderness. He saw the faith of Rahab the prostitute in the wall of Jericho. Jesus has been in the throne room of heaven. He's commanded angels on the earth. And he knows what true majesty and true glory and true power look like. And he knows the hearts and minds of humans as he has seen the ebbs and flows and trends of human history and the lineages of humanity 
even yours. <laughs> he has seen it all. And for those that recognize that the testimony of Jesus is not based on a mere 30 or 40 or 50 or 70 or 100 years of existence with limited insight and knowledge, but that it draws upon what he has seen and heard from the heavenly realms while he himself sustains the very happenings of earth with depths of vision and understanding in perfect clarity. Only one from God can see that. And so verse 33 tells us, for the one that receives his testimony that's based on all of that vast knowledge, he puts his seal that God is true. And for the one who doesn't, by implication, he calls God a liar. Friends, the one who comes from heaven <laughs> brings all of the benefits of heaven. The third reason why Jesus is elevated is seen in the fact that he receives the spirit without measure. Verse 34, he for whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. That is, God gives Jesus the spirit without measure. Because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Throughout history, God empowered the speaking of his agenda, his word, his voice, by giving the Spirit in measure. He gave it to prophets and to kings and to the judges in doses for specific time periods defined by God to accomplish the purposes that God had. But not so with Jesus. With Jesus, there is no measure, no limitation. Verse 34 tells us that God gives the Spirit to the Son in limitless fashion. He's always empowered and is always benefiting from it. Now, you might ask yourself a question, and you'd be right to do so. If Jesus has been in eternity past with God, the Father, and with the Spirit then why does the eternal Son of God need the Holy Spirit of God without measure? I'm so glad you asked. It's a good question, and I think the answer is twofold. First comes in the nature of Jesus' humanity. That Jesus is truly fully God, but he is also fully man. And as such... Being fully man, he experienced temptation, he had needs and desires, he experienced nearly the full range of human emotion. And the Spirit ministers and empowers in the midst of his humanity and in the midst of ours. Secondly, we here get a glimpse into the unique and mysterious role of the persons of the Trinity. That the Father loves the Son and gives him all things. That the Spirit's role is to empower the mission of the Father in glorifying the Son for all humanity to see so that people would come to know him and love him and be transferred and transformed. That the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son in this ministry of his. And 
time fails to go further, but we just get a taste of the majestic nature and the roles of the Trinity as the Godhead relates to each other. And of course we know here in the Gospel of John that later Jesus himself would say, when I go away, it's to your benefit because the Comforter will come, the Holy Spirit who will lead you and guide you into all truth. And not only will he come in measure, he will actually indwell the ones who believe in this Son. So Jesus must be raised up. Lastly, why should Jesus be made much of? Because he gives eternal life. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He's come so that you might have life. The one from heaven gives the benefits of heaven, and the greatest benefit of heaven is life. Spiritual life, eternal life. He is the life giver, and following him will give you that life. And there are so many points in our human experience that cause us to be distracted with the allure of greater life, but without the founding behind it. With the allure of safety, without the founding behind it. With the allure of greater prosperity personally, but without the founding behind it. And those things ultimately do not lead to life. I think on May 7th, 1915, the RMS Lusitania, a British ocean liner, was struck by a torpedo from a German submarine. The ship sank in a matter of minutes killing 1,198 of the 1,959 passengers aboard. And in her book, Lusitania, an epic tragedy, an author named Diana Preston recorded the observations of one of the passengers, a man named Charles Laureate. As the ship was sinking, and as Laureate looked around to see who needed life jackets, he noticed that among the crowds now pouring onto the deck, nearly everyone who passed by him that was wearing a life jacket had it on incorrectly. And in his panic, one man had thrust one arm through an armhole and his head through the other armhole. Others rushed past wearing the life jackets upside down. No one had read the neat little signs around the ship telling people how to put them on. And Laureate tried to help some, but some thought that he was trying to actually take their life jacket for his own. And so they shooed him away and fled in terror. Preston continues. Dead and drowning people were dotting the sea like seagulls. Many bodies were floating upside down because people had put on their life jackets the wrong way up so that their heads were pushed under the water. They had the allure of safety, the promise of hope, what was told to be the mechanism for their future, and they died. Friends, there are a lot of people, a lot of philosophies, a lot of political parties that would have you follow their ways, but not a single one of them is more certain than this Jesus. Not a single one of them is more compelling. Not a single one is more majestic. He alone gives life. John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, 
but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 20, 31, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in his name, you will have life. The one who comes from heaven gives us the benefits of heaven, which is eternal life. And so we must lift him up. Let's pray together. Father, bolden our confidence in your son. Help us to see and understand his majestic nature all the more as we consider what he has seen and heard and how this validates his testimony. For those here today who don't know him or who doubt, we pray to see Christ as he really is today, that you might continue to save us. For those who know him and who love him, we need strength that comes to fight the temptation of self-glory or self-agenda. We need strength to make much of him and to trust in his purposes and his plans through all the seasons of life. We thank you that you are a sovereign God and a good king. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.